0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I hope you stay tuned for a very interesting conversation about an interesting book. It's a new memoir out from Justin Hawking. It's called The Great Floodgates of the Wonder World. It is in part about obsession with a book about obsession. We're talking about Herman Melville's masterpiece, Moby Dick. Also, Also Carl Jung's concept of the night sea journey book also takes us into the worlds of skateboarding and New York surfing culture and Wednesday night meetings of men striving to overcome addictions. That's coming up. First of all, a couple of comments in from Steve in Beaverdam, Arizona, regarding our conversation from yesterday with uh, Douglas Brinkley, whose uh, biography was released last year on Walter Cronkite. And uh, Steve says, following, in the era of Walter Cronkite, one of the things that was very different from today is that there was serious attention paid to the idea that the airwaves were held in trust for the American people. That in return for the very profitable licenses broadcasters were granted, they owed some duty to the public. The news operations were a manifestation of this obligation, were they not? Weren't the news departments at that time operated at a loss? When did this cease to be so? When did broadcast news operations become corporate profit centers? That's Steve in Beaverdam, Arizona. And then he writes back in, uh, will Douglas Brinkley's next book be about David Brinkley? And then he says, just kidding. So thanks for those, uh, Steve. You can keep the conversation going about Walter Cronkite by going to our website, upr.org. Now to our subject for today. Our guest today, Justin Hawking has written an interesting new memoir. It's called The Great Floodgates of the Wonder World. It's about surfing in Far Rockaway. We don't uh, usually think of surfing in the New York area. Romantic Obsession and uh, Moby Dick. Justin Hawking is obsessed with a novel about Obsession. Uh, Justin Hawking lands in New York, hopeful but adrift. He's jobless, unexpectedly overwhelmed and disoriented by the city, struggling with anxiety and obsession, and attempting to maintain a faltering long-distance relationship. As a man whose brand of therapy has always been motion, whether in a skate park or on a snowdrift. Hawking needs an outlet for his restlessness. And when he spies his first New York surfer, hauling aboard to the subway, and it's not long before he's a member of the vibrant and passionate surfing community at Far Rockaway. But in the wake of a traumatic robbery incident, the dark undercurrents of his ocean obsession pull him further and further out on his own night sea journey. Justin Hawking, welcome to the program.
1: Tom, thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here.
0: So um, it, let's just give it maybe a brief thumbnail sketch. Your brief biography. You were raised until you're about eleven in Colorado, right? Correct. Yes. Your father's an engineer, uh, I, I think, to- and mother's a nurse.
1: Right. I grew up in a small town called Glenwood Springs, about an hour outside of Aspen, and uh, we had a little local ski hill there, so I did a lot of skiing growing up, and it was an interesting place to grow up.
0: So, so you did do skiing, I guess, growing up, as, as a lot of people skiing in the West do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, then out to California. Correct. Uh, Correct.
1: Yeah, we moved... When I was 12, we moved to San Diego, and that's where I got uh, really, really uh, obsessed with board sports like skateboarding, and I uh, sort of dabbled in a little bit of surfing at that point, and also snowboarding. And so that that was the, the sort of uh, epicenter for this this lifelong uh, pursuit with board sports. <laughs>
0: So a lot of skateboarding, I think only one incident at the time, a bad experience with surfing that, that sort of turned you off, at least for then.
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's so funny because this this book, the memoirs, uh, you know, really revolves around surfing, and I, I grew up in San Diego, which is a really, you know, one of the best places in the country to surf, but I didn't really pick it up, not until I was 30 and moved to New York City, of all places. Um, So, yeah, one thing that happened when I lived in San Diego, um, you know, the ocean has always been uh, really compelling to me, but also really overwhelming and and scary in a lot of ways. And when I was, I think I was 12 years old, and my dad bought me a used surfboard and a wetsuit, and I went out, I paddled out by myself, had no idea what I was doing. I was at La Jolla Shores. And... I hadn't even made it out into the lineup, and a guy that's probably about my age now, you know, in his 30s or 40s, um, basically ran over me, and his fin, um, uh, you know, ripped, ripped into my thigh. It didn't cut my thigh open, but it hit it, my thigh so hard that it ripped my wetsuit, and it uh, severely bruised my leg to the point where I could not, and my leg was temporarily paralyzed, and he had to pick me up, and carrying me out of the water. In the book, I described it as kind of a reverse baptism, and so that was my first, my very first experience with surfing. And as you can imagine, I wasn't very keen to get back into it after that happened. Um, and and I did pick up skateboarding and found it, ironically, uh, a lot safer. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and uh, but I, I still, you know, I still had this, I, I had this longing. Uh, for the sea, and, and I really wanted to, I knew someday I wanted to, that was a sport that I really wanted to pick up. And then, you know, when I moved to New York City, uh, I, that, that was such a shock to the system aesthetically and emotionally to, to go from, a you know, the West where we have so much open space and we take it for granted to this place where they're just open spaces at such a premium. And the one place that I really found it was uh, Rockaway Beach, uh, Long Beach, the uh, the Montauk and the the Hamptons, that whole area. Um, And I just, you know, going to the beach became just like this necessary escape. It was the the one place where I felt like I could breathe, and there was, um, you know, like a real sense of atmosphere, and and, uh, it was just a great escape. And so, you know, at age... Thirty, I believe, I, I finally figured out. I uh, finally dedicated myself to learning how to surf, and, and it was you know it was a, such a fun place to do it because it's it's so unlikely most New Yorkers don't even really uh, are hardly aware that they even live by the water or the ocean. You know they're so kind of caught up in their day-to-day existence in the city, and um, but there, but there is a really vibrant um, subculture of. of Surfing and, and interesting beach culture uh, at Rockaway Beach and and you know especially in the in the light of Hurricane Sandy I just uh, just have a huge you know place in my heart for for that for that city.
0: Mm. That borough. Uh, you you talk about um, well first of all uh, that uh, tell me about when you first saw the I don't know if it's a guy or girl carrying a surfboard on the on the subway. And you you, yeah. you say that a surfer in New York City is like seeing an ice climber on the streets of L.A. Totally astonishing to me. <laughs>
1: yeah, it was. I just, you know, I just didn't really have any concept of it as at the time. I think it's becoming oh, people are a little more accustomed to it now because there's more of it on the East Coast. But yeah, you know, I was I was visiting the city. I think it was 2003. Early 2003, and and uh, I was there to kind of check things out, um, to spend some time with the people that became my roommates. I was working on a book, and I met a publisher about a potential book contract. And I was I was riding a little high with with the idea of moving to that city. It's so exciting, and I I remember being in, this, in a lunch meeting and going outside, and I just spotted this guy coming out, up out of the subway. Uh, and it was in the West Village, and he, you know, he had this surfboard tucked under his arm, and it, it was, it was astonishing. You know, I was like, I couldn't figure out maybe he'd been on vacation in the tropics or something, but, but, uh, you know, as, as I slowly figured out, you can actually take the subway to places like Long Beach and are actually Rockaway. You can take a commuter train to, to Long Beach. Um, but that that idea was so compelling to me um, that that mix of um, like just, uh, you know, the most urban place in the world um, with with the ocean and, and the ability to go out and be in, in the sea and to be able to ride a subway to do it. And, and just this, it was just interesting kind of hyper-mobility that really intrigued me and, and just this blend of, you know, all that, all that New York has to offer culturally and then, um, you know, again, the idea that you could could go out and go surfing in, in, in the same city was, I think I described it as kind of like a, uh, a signal fire um, that that um, that really kind of helped me uh, or influenced me to make this bizarre decision to to move to New York City at age thirty with no solid job prospects.
0: <laughs> mm. You say um, it, one of your chapters is called "Moving." I'll just read this uh, mm. paragraph. Uh, you you describe obsessiveness as uh, having Latin roots of opposite of to sit, so meaning you can't sit yeah. still. You, you're have obsessive personality, and you said you crave I uh, crave motion, action, momentum, skating, paddling, pedaling. Without these all-consuming physical activities, I can become easily bored, falling prey to darker obsessions, anxieties, self-destructive tendencies. I need an obsession to give my life a central organizing principle, to feel something like a sense of purpose, to keep from turning on myself. And and yeah. so uh, um, many things. I guess it's st- you. You go on to say in this chapter, it started with the break dancing. You became a good break dancer,
1: uh-huh.
0: yeah. and uh, skateboarding, surfing, um, but but keeping moving always. That's that's something that you were, you found important.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I it's an. I think I have kind of weird. My personality is a weird blend of uh, hyper physicality, um, where I I I, I am a really physical person and, um, uh, I, you know, I think I feel most at home in the world when I feel like I'm in, uh, rooted in my body and, and, you know, doing something that I enjoy that's physical, like skateboarding or swimming or surfing for sure. Um, but on the other hand, uh, you know, I'm a writer and, and, uh, writing requires these, um, kind of marathon-like, um, stretches of time, uh, sitting still, being at the desk, forcing yourself uh, uh, to, to just, you know, to do the writing. And um, so it's, it's, it's a bit of a weird combination. But, you know, I, I, I do think, Tom, that uh, writing itself is a really a physical activity. I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously it's, most of it's taking place up in your head. Uh, but just the act of writing, being able to sit that long, is, that's a physical act. Um, and I think that it requires stamina and training and, you know, there's a fantastic book that I love by Haruki Murakami, it's called, uh, What I Talk About When I Talk About Running, and he really, he, he draws a lot of parallels between, uh, running marathons and writing a novel, um, and it's a really, really interesting book, and he, you know, he talks about, uh, just how much, how much mental, mental, and physical stamina writing does, does take, so.
0: I wonder, as I was reading this, and the paragraph I just read of yours, that um, you could fall prey to darker obsessions, anxieties, self-destructive tendencies, need uh-huh. an obsession to give your life a central organizing principle. And I wondered if, if writing... Is the healthiest occupation for for a guy like you? Do you, do you find it, you know, because it's 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 navel gazing perhaps, and and maybe not completely healthy for an obsessive. Uh, do you find it well, ca- cathartic or? Uh...
1: Yeah, I, well, you know, um, I think navel gazing gets a bad rap. I mean, think about your navel; it's the it's sort of like the center of the universe. From mm-hmm. it's this like kind of profound connection to your mother, but also to. Uh, creation you know I love that I love that idea and um, I think that uh, certainly it is it is there there are hazards to the trade especially for for someone that tends to ruminate like me um, and tends toward towards rumination but you know it's a great question and I uh, I think that that um, yeah sometimes it sometimes it, it exacerbates that rumination but uh, you know, Rollo May, the, the famous humanist psychologist, wrote a book called "The Courage to Create." and he, you know, he talked about the creative act as as sort of the, the pinnacle of, of human healthiness and, and individuation. And so it's, you know it certainly not it doesn't always feel that way when you're sitting down to write and you're stuck on something or especially when you're writing a memoir and you're dredging up painful memories but, but I do. I, I really do feel like uh, uh, writing, again, has its hazards, but it's, it's, it's in my blood, and, and, it, and it is, I think, a, a, really, um, a really healthy activity that can also, you know, in some really interesting ways, can actually get you out of your head when you're... Even when writing a memoir, when, you know, I, I went off on so many digressions in this book and sort of, uh, you know, explored... Um, history and philosophy and psychology and religion, and, and, um, and I, I just, I love, I love literature can, I think, really transport you and help you kind of transcend yourself in many ways, so, so there's that, that aspect of it as well.
0: This might be a good place, to, and I'm skipping over a bunch here, and we'll, we'll loop back and, and uh, pick up a lot, but near the end of your book, you, you talk about uh, Barry Lopez. Uh, who sure. m- many of our yeah. listeners will be familiar with, and uh, he's he's a fellow, I guess, Moby Dick and Melville obsessive. By the way, the, I hadn't known this. Yeah. Uh, there's a phrase, the white death. Explain that. What does that mean?
1: Uh-huh. Well, uh, I think that that was coined by Charles Olson, who was a... I believe he was working in the early to mid-19th century. He's a well-known poet. Um, he... I think he was one of the founders of the Black Mountain School, this experimental arts college, in, I think in the, somewhere in the South. Um, and he was just—he was a, a really remarkable poet, and he wrote this book called *Call Me Ishmael*, um, that uh, was one inspiration for for my own book in some in some ways. Um, but it's it's just a series of uh, very stream of consciousness riffs uh, about. About moby dick and, and about Melville and uh, just a f- fascinating book if if your reader, if the listeners haven't heard of it uh, they they might want to check it out. It's a great read. so he uh, was the, there's this there's this kind of lore that i that I talk about in my own book. Um, an academic went to visit him, and this academic had been working on some of his own writing about Moby Dick, and this was kind of the height of the um, Moby Dick revival, like in the twenties and thirties and forties, when people were starting to rediscover and celebrate this book that had been ignored in its own time. And um, so, the story goes that Olson was was sitting in his in his cramped Greenwich Village apartment, surrounded by all his stacks of books and old copies of Moby Dick and all his papers, and and uh, he's reading this this academic's work, and he says, you know. It looks like the it looks like the you've caught the white death too, um, and the white death is this his, sort of his phrase for um for this weird this bizarre preoccupation with with Melville and Moby Dick that um, quite a, quite a few people quite a few artists uh, and writers um, and even scientists and philosophers and other types have have been plagued both plagued and blessed by.
0: So, yeah, the white mm-hmm. death. Uh, so, uh, and we'll come back to this uh, top, fascinating topic, the the white death and, and obsession yeah. with Moby Dick and, and Melville. Uh, but Barry Lopez, he, um, as you write in the book, ended up reading Moby Dick uh, three times before college. And he mm-hmm. says, as you quote him as an eventual environmental writer, he found most akin yeah. to his own desire to describe, as he says, what happened, what I saw when I went outside and uh in yeah. his uh, essay, "The Whale Boat," he talks about what we were just talking about um, about contemplation or the lack thereof, and what he says is American culture's general lack of contemplation. What if you take it up yeah. there and, and, and tell us what you're talking about in that chapter
1: yeah, you know it's it's uh the chapter it was really fun in this book to to kind of riff off you know. To tell my story through multiple other stories, and uh, I, I just love this this essay by by Barry Lopez. He's one of my favorite writers, and yeah, like you said, it's called the Whaleboat, and it, it's really hard to put your finger on exactly what this essay is about. Um, he's not an easy writer to pigeonhole, but it, it does, like you said, it revolves this this idea revolves around this idea that. Um, that a balanced life and a balanced culture and society requires this um, homeostasis, uh, a balance between uh, action and contemplation, and he uh, posits the notion that Ahab is just pure action. Um, he, He has no really ability or desire to contemplate the ramifications of his actions. He's on this mad quest after the whale and it's like it's almost psychopathic it is psychopathic the way that he just has no regard for um, the way that his vengeance uh, puts in at endangers everyone aboard the Pequod Those are hundreds of men um, and then you compare him to someone like uh Starbuck on board who is uh, the first mate and who uh is Fully cognizant of Ahab's madness and petrified of this man, and um, ruminates about how to stop, how to stop what Ahab has put into motion. But he's 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 so contemplative, as is probably Ishmael, the other main character, um, that they are un, unable to take action. And so I think it's a really it's a kind of interesting dichotomy to explore. And I think Barry Lopez is making maybe a subtle point about how uh, a healthy individual life requires this balance of a- uh, action and contemplation, and a healthy culture uh, requires that, that same balance. And, you know, I, when I when I was in New York, it was the height of the Iraq War, and, and um, I was thinking a lot about, um, about the war kind of in, in these terms, how I, I didn't, feel like there was had been enough contemplation of ramifications of, of our actions um, in, in invading that particular country.
0: In fact, as you point out, and I had forgotten this, uh, remembered it as, as you pointed out, uh, there were some... Things being thrown around from Moby Dick, uh, you know, about yeah. obsession from that book, uh, uh, you know, equating Captain Ahab to Saddam Hussein or to President Bush, and uh, you know, kind of sort of a mm-hmm. blind obsession.
1: Yeah, or to Osama bin Laden as an Ahab figure, um, and certainly to um, to uh, Dick Cheney as as kind of an Ahab figure, and there's this there's this really um, uncanny passage. And in, in early in, in Moby Dick, uh, where he kind of kind of quoting from this imaginary Ishmael's quoting from this imaginary um, advertisement or newspaper headline, and it says "Grand contested election for the presidency of the United States, um, whaling voyage by one Ishmael, and bloody battle in Afghanistan." So again, it's just kind of he's kind of throwing in his own little relatively insignificant voyage into these big, you know, these big events that were happening. And it's, it's a lot of people, especially in around 2003, 2004, pointed out how strange that was and how kind of prophetic, uh, because th- this was right after the grandly contested election between, uh, Bush and Al Gore. Uh, and then, you know, also we had a bloody, we had our own bloody battle in Afghanistan going. So, a lot of people were drawing a lot of parallels between what was happening in the Middle East and um, Moby Dick, which I really think is, is a book for the ages. You know, it's, it transcends its own age, and it speaks to, I think, can speak to to American culture at almost any time in its history. But, but something about uh, that particular time, I think, was part of the reason I was so obsessed with the book, because I was so disturbed about what was happening with our country and felt that it uh, had sort of been hijacked in some ways by Ahab figures.
0: We are going to take a brief break. When we come back, uh, more with Justin Hawking. His memoir is titled The Great Floodgates of the Wonder World. When Justin Hawking moves to New York City, his obsession with the novel Moby Dick deepens and he discovers a thriving surf culture at Rockaway Beach. Soon, in the wake of a difficult breakup and a traumatic robbery, he embarks on his own night-sea journey. We'll talk more about Moby Dick, obsession with Moby Dick, and um, a a connection with Carl Jung to Herman Melville, which, interestingly, uh, Justin Hawking discovers in sort of the dank-smelling basement of the library at Colorado State University, which had been flooded. There's another water reference. More following this break.
1: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers artisan bread in Logan. Open for breakfast Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and Saturdays at 8 a.m. featuring croque madame and croque monsieur made with sourdough bread, ham, and cheese. Menu details at crumbbrothers.com.
0: Making friends with endangered mountain gorillas in the Congo. Before reaching the gorilla, you have just to give the, uh, the, the signs, <gasps> just to communicate with gorilla so that it can just remember that uh, these guys, my friend, it's not the enemy. But plenty of enemies still threaten the mountain gorillas. I'm Steve Kerwood. That's next time on Living on Earth from PRI.
1: Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
0: We're back with Justin Hawking. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. His memoir, just out from uh, uh, Gray Wolf Press, is uh, The Great Floodgates of the Wonder World. Justin Hawking, raised in Colorado and California, um, almost on a whim, decides to move out to New York City and uh, tries luck out there. He wants to write a novel. He uh, gets hooked into a thriving surf culture, which many of us don't know about it, Rockaway Beach. Um, off Long Island, and his obsession with the novel Moby Dick deepens as well as we go along. And at the same time, he's he's trying to nurse along a long-distance relationship um, and dealing with his own uh, inner demons. Uh, yeah. It's a very interesting memoir, and out, as I said, from uh, Grey Wolf Press. Uh, so uh, I wonder, uh, hopefully you have your book with you. Justin sure. Hawking. I wonder, this is a good way to get us uh, into this, and it gives us a little more about uh, Moby Dick. Page 16. I wonder if you just read page 16 mm-hmm. for me. Certainly. And we could set this up by uh, expanding on uh, what I what I said before the break. You're at Colorado State, I think, working on your graduate degree. Yeah. And you say the library had been flooded, at least the basement. They'd, yeah. they'd got all the books back by irradiation, but there's still sort of a uh, a smell of water. And it's, yeah. so I guess a little ironic that uh, you're... you're, yeah. you're uh, by this time, you're already well into your Moby Dick obsession. You're looking for books about uh, Melville and Moby Dick. Um, and you discover a book. Tell us a little bit about, about the book, and then, then read for us page 16.
1: Sure. You know, I... I... We went down in the basement looking for critical theory um, about Moby Dick, and, and I found a lot of a lot of titles that felt a little bit run of the mill to me until I came across uh, a union interpretation of the book, um, as in uh, the famous American psychologist Carl Jung, um, and the the book was called Melville's Moby Dick: An American Nikia. The word is spelled N-E-K. And I'll go ahead and start reading on page 16 and it kind of defines that term. The word Nakia derives from the title of the 11th book of the Odyssey, wherein Odysseus ascends into the underworld to commune with the dead. According to the author, Edward Edinger, Moby Dick is the quintessential American Nakia a kind of metaphorical night-seed journey through despair and meaninglessness, symbolizing the dark passages that we all embark on during our development as individuals and as a society. In Jungian theory, most spiritual journeys begin with a kind of universal descent into the underworld, where we come face-to-face with our own darkness, weaknesses, and fears, our shadow, so Moby Dick can be read as Ishmael's confrontation with his dark side in the form of Ahab, just as most of us wrestle daily with our own dark moods and impulses, and our country reckons with its imperialistic shadow side. The clash turns bloody and violent, and Ahab's resentful pursuit of the white whale brings down the entire ship. Only Ishmael is reborn through the wreckage, having assimilated his shadow after this deep, deep psychic battle, he floats upward through a spiraling whirlpool. In Jungian terms, the circular current is a mandala, an ancient symbol of wholeness and individuation. So I'll stop there, Tom.
0: Okay. And you say that's where it began, your own white death. (laughs) Um.
1: Yeah, Yeah, yes. It's kind of a syndrome characterized by, you know, like obsessive thoughts about the book and about Melville and his life and collecting of old copies of the book and talking about it to anyone who will listen.
0: Uh, so what do you make, I'm sure you've thought a lot about this, anybody with The White Death probably has, of an yeah. obsession about a book whose central theme is obsession?
1: Sure. Sure. It's it's odd and it's somehow apropos. Um, and, yeah, again, I, I, I think it has to do with that obsessive element. Um, uh, you know, Ahab is this obsessed, um, quintessentially obsessed person. Um, but, I, you know, I have to say, Tom, that my, I think that my interest in the book, uh, my preoccupation is with the main character, the narrator of Ishmael, um, who, some, who often gets overlooked when people are talking about the book in kind of a general way. They're, they're mostly thinking of Ahab, and they have these kind of preconceived notions of what the book's about. But I'm really fascinated by Ishmael, who's more of kind of a uh, spiritual seeker. And, and, you know, like I read, um, I think the book is about obsession, absolutely. But I'm fascinated with the book as um, a kind of postmodern guidebook for surviving uh, these dark times, these dark periods in our life. I, I, I read the book as a kind of Survival narrative, and, and that's that's why I I think I after going through, you know, ha- struggling in New York and then going through a particularly traumatic uh, event and subsequently kind of spiraling into a dark emotional place, I really clung to the book, uh, to Moby Dick, uh, as you know I really clung to this this union interpretation that that um, sort of like going through this this dark. Uh, journey and confronting you, you, this kind of, these kind of shadowy figures and these um, um, confronting these, these dark emotions like revenge and vengeance and anger and fury and um, and, and all these things uh, that can lead to the night sea journey, uh, which is itself kind of a kind of a dark uh, spiritual rebirth in many ways, and, and so that that's kind of I think. That i that notion that that personal journey for me uh, is kind of what the book really, on its deepest level, revolves around. Mm. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I was I, I was worried about writing this book that people would think I was like comparing myself uh, to characters in the book or to Melville or Ahab. But more than that, I I, I hope that I really wasn't doing that. I was I was more reading the book as, um, again, as, as a survival story, as inspiration.
0: Um, uh, I wonder if you could expand on that, how, how this is transformative for you and, and probably for other people as well, this experience, um, the, this, this night-sea voyage. You write... Night-sea voyage, uh, yeah. ...that uh, in, in, in the wake of your breakup, you have a breakup, there's a traumatic incident, or a robbery, um, which yeah. really has you spiraling downward... Um, and you yeah. say this is interesting. You paraphrase Joan Didion. You lost your own life's narrative, so without your own script, you clung to Moby Dick as kind of postmodern survival yeah. guide. Um, yeah. but it, it's transformative yeah. for you. You had to descend into this dark place, but but you're reborn.
1: Yeah, it's in been a, a very subtle way. Yeah, I think um, you know I I was. Uh, in 2006, I flew to Colorado, and it was it was kind of ironic because, you know, I'd been living in New York City uh, for a couple of years, and, and New York is actually a, extreme, a really safe place for the most part. Um, and then I I hadn't been in back home in, in my home state of Colorado and in the city of Denver for more than 40 minutes when I pulled up to my stepsister's house and... Um, I was in this rental car, and for some reason, the key got stuck in the ignition of the car. It was just bizarre. And then uh, this SUV pulled up with uh, some uh, young men with guns, <laughs> who, you know, uh, basically took all our belongings and carjacked us, stole the rental car, and every my computer with this novel i had been working on for a long time. And the whole thing was actually sort of comedic when it happened, because it happened so quick and. Um, but, uh, you know, I was already, I was already in, this, in, a, in a difficult place, and I was uh, struggling with my career and writing and relationships, and um, I think that uh, I had, um, not to downplay PTSD, uh, but I did, I did have some. Um, I had a certain degree of that, and um, I subsequently just went, went to a really dark place, um, and uh yeah i, I like I, in the white album Joan, Joan didion uh has this amazing essay that she wrote and she does kind of talk about uh, uh this era in the in the sixties right after the charles manson murders in l a when uh, there was just kind of this mass confusion and mass hysteria and she she had really sort of lost her her own personal narrative and she she just wasn't sure what the rules were or the she didn't feel like she had any directions for how how to proceed with life. And I, and I, for, uh, you know, a couple months there, I, I think I felt the same way. And, um, and that's where, you know, I, I, I don't want to, I think it's a little maybe dramatic to say that Moby Dick like saved my life, but it, you know, when you're in the, when you're in that period, you cling to any, any kind of narrative you can. And so, Moby Dick is a really dark book, and I think that's part of the reason that it spoke to me because I was in such a dark place myself, and I just I just held fast to this idea of surviving, um, uh, like Ishmael through through this period, and it was what I was surviving really was my own self destructiveness, um, because I was sort of so unhappy uh, and and uh, about how things had turned out, and I was again kind of dealing with this uh tra- trauma and 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 um, frankly dealing with uh some suicidal ideation and um and so it, it, i think that i think that that's what literature literature does so many different things but one of the things that i love about it is that it does it does provide us with with these stories that can help us survive these periods it does shine some light on, on the dark places in, in our lives. It does, uh, in my, in my opinion, the best literature, it, it, it it's, uh, about wounded characters, um, sort of grasping towards, towards some sort of redemption. And, um, I, I think that that's how, how I read one way that I read Moby Dick and, and, and one reason that it was, it was so, um, helpful and, and transformative to me. And I, and and the, the experience of, of this kind of this kind of my own night sea journey, you know, culminated in moving to Oregon, and I uh, miscalculated the power of the Pacific Ocean uh, in the winter time, and and um, had a really frightening uh, experience uh, getting caught in a riptide, and and just sort of I think I uh, sort of confronted death. Head on, and realized that I didn't. I wasn't interested in that. I wanted to make it back to shore in a literal and kind of metaphorical way, and and uh, I think that um, uh, things really opened up for me in such interesting ways after that, and and um, I, my life stabilized, and and um, I uh, was able to just reach this point of um, feeling a lot a lot more. Um, positive and, and creative. And that's, that's when I, I was able to reflect back on this experience and start, start drawing these connections with this book that I loved and realized that maybe there's a book in this. And uh, that's, that's what sparked it. Uh,
0: the book, by the way, if you just joined us, is The Great Floodgates of the Wonder World. It's a memoir by Justin Hawking, my guest for the hour. We're going to take another brief break. When we come back, we'll explore a little further this idea of this this uh, night-sea journey. I'll ask uh, Mr. Hawking how universal he thinks uh, this is. Others he has perhaps talked to about this. Um, and I I'm, i just have to ask you, Mr. Hawking, we'll do this p- following the break, what it's like to edit romance novels. That's what you were, ended yeah. up doing in, uh, in, in New York City. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and
1: the Utah Humanities Council, Empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement in the humanities. Online at utahhumanities.org.
0: BBC. BBC. Hello, I'm Rosakins. Welcome to World Have Your Say. Coming up on Outlook after the news, the Somali journalist who witnessed the murder of his boss. Hello, I'm Steve Evans. Welcome to Business Daily. Coming up, the big fight. This is Owen Bennett-Jones with Hour. The BBC is your gateway to the world. And this is your BBC station. Monday through Saturday afternoons
1: at 3 on Utah Public Radio.
0: You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Justin Hawking, who is author of several books. Uh, Most uh, lately is The Great Floodgates of the Wonder World. It's a memoir. When he moves to New York City, his obsession with the novel Moby Dick deepens and he discovers a thriving surf culture at Rockaway Beach. And soon, in the wake of a difficult breakup and a traumatic robbery, he embarks on his own night sea journey. That's what we've been talking about just prior to the break. We're on tape in this part, this hour of the program, but you can respond at upraxcess at gmail.com. So, uh, Justin Hawking. You've been talking about your own night sea journey. It's mm-hmm. transformative for you. Even included uh, for you f- facing physical death, and th- that made the decision that you definitely wanted to live and 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 uh, thrive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um How universal do you think is that this idea of the night sea journey? Do, do does each one of us in our own way have to face this? Have you talked to other people who've, have gone through such an experience? And I guess a related question: What? if you have talked to the people about this what what got them through it what was their narrative you turned to moby dick
1: sure I, you know i I, th- I think that there is an element of universality in it i think it is a kind of an archetypal um journey and and you know the psychologist carl jung really talked about it as such and i think that uh this you know i don't want to speak for everyone but i think that during our development as as humans we we all embark on these night sea journeys, or another word for it might be kind of a dark night of the soul. Uh, whenever we suffer a loss or a trauma and then find ourselves you know, floating alone and directionless and scared and unsure, if we'll make it back to solid ground, There's, I think that these journeys, I mean, if you if you imagine that feeling of actually being at sea at night, um, potentially stranded on a, on a ship, um there's a tremendous feeling of fear and and uncertainty. I mean, that that is maybe one of the most quintessential aspects of of the feeling is this kind of unknowingness. If you're if you're going to make it back to solid ground, and so again, I I don't I don't want to speak for everyone, but I think that I think that there is there is universality in it. I think it is an experience that that most people are going to have at some course some course in there. At some point in their their adult life.
0: Now, some. Um, uh, oh, uh, I, I, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off.
1: Well, I was going to say you asked uh, about other people that have been through the same experience. You know, to be honest, Tom, it's not something that uh, people talk about that much, um, and um, that is why I love the the memoir uh, genre because I feel like. And the same goes for fiction too, but I feel like I feel like that um, literature and, for me especially, creative nonfiction, um, is it can be a sacred space where people are empowered to say things that they wouldn't necessarily say, even to their friends or family during the course of a casual conversation. Hmm. And so, for me, the, the the works that I love most uh, are the ones where you do have a sense of the. The narrator having been through this kind of uh descent experience and 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 then having emerged transformed and whole and you know I'm thinking of um a friend of mine and and one of my favorite authors, Cheryl strade, who wrote the book wild um really really well received memoir about um, losing a mother and dabbling with hard drugs and just being completely lost in her life and and then embarking on this thousand long, thousand mile long uh, hike through the uh, on the Pacific Crest Trail and kind of rediscovering yourself there. Uh, another one of my favorite books is a uh, fictional. I think it's very autobiographical fiction. Um, but uh, Dennis Johnson's book called Jesus Son, uh, which is also about kind of drug abuse and this uh, addicted state and, and a kind of subsequent subtle reawakening. So those, are, those tend to be the the narratives that I'm. Not always, but uh, often
0: drawn towards. So briefly, I promised it before the break, um, a couple other things I want to get onto, but um, what's it like to edit romance novels? That's what you ended up uh, doing in, in New York.
1: Yeah, well, that was part, part of the reason that I was unhappy with my career. I worked in publishing, and, and I should say first that um, uh, I, I worked with a fantastic editor. Uh, my my boss at the company I worked for was just such a warm and uh, uh, intelligent person, and I was really lucky to work with someone like him, and I learned a lot from him. Uh, and I worked on all kinds of books. Um, I, you know, we we did uh we had some interesting books in our back um, in our back titles of books, like um, the famous anti-war book uh, "Johnny Got His Gun" by Dalton Trumbo. Uh, I worked on a re-release of that at kind of at the height of the uh, Iraq War, and felt like it was. Pretty timely release, and so I worked on some really fascinating books. But yeah, um, I do have a chapter in the book where I talk about my boss kind of bringing me in and sitting me down and saying, you know, look, uh, the, the publishing industry is changing, and uh, one of one of the things that's selling best for us right now is romance. And so I need you to edit some more of these. And uh, you know, I absolutely do not want to cast any aspersions on any genre of literature. Uh, I have a lot of respect for, for for romance. I have respect for anyone that can write a book that is readable and interesting, and actually finish that book. Um, and you know, you think about some of the masters, some of the originators of the romance genre. Uh, you know, the Bronte sisters, um, Jane Austen. These are fantastic. Uh, uh, really influential writers and and, uh, and that's where that's where contemporary romance derives from, but um, actually working on it uh, was troubling for me because uh, I was in the th- you know going through a, I'd been through a major breakup and I was um, sort of contemplating and working on a life of failed relationships and so at least at that point. And so reading in that genre was uh, and editing in that genre was um, just really unfulfilling and even um, despair-inducing at times.
0: Mm-hmm. You, uh, you did an interesting thing. I mean, it's, it seems logical, but I guess it wouldn't occur to everyone. You're working on trying to work through why you keep having these failed relationships. And you yeah. you end up in uh, Wednesday night meetings. Is this I don't know. Is this AA or NA or it's it's.
1: Well, yeah. I, I, uh, for the sake of anonymity, I I don't talk about the specific group, but it, it was it was a it was a support group, and uh, with uh, a lot of men who were all working on the same issues, kind um, of codependency and relationship issues. And uh, it was I tell you what, it was it was a humbling experience to. Um, to a realize that I had this problem that I had been sort of using people, using relationships my whole life, uh, and then to make the decision to to kind of descend down. It was you know the meetings actually took place in this basement, the church, and to kind of descend down into those rooms and um, and face to face with again this, this kind of shadowy aspect of myself um, and and frankly a uh, kind of an, an an addictive aspect of myself. Um, but, uh, I met amazing people there and, and, uh, uh, and it, and it, it, I have to say that it really, really did transform my life and, and, um, and taught me a lot of things about how to be in, in relationship, you know, romantically, but also just, just with anyone. And, uh, and, you know, I'm, i I'm now engaged to be married and, and, oh, you know, congratulations. I, I, Thank you. I'm, I'm really, I'm really glad that I did that work and continue to continue to do that work.
0: Yeah, it, it bore fruit. The, the interesting thing there was, uh, you know, you you made that connection, sort of that through theme of obsession and an addiction. Yeah. You know, even though you you may not it may not have occurred to everybody, uh, I'd like to just have a oh two or three minutes left. I'd like to to, to loop back around to Melville. I hadn't yeah. known this, and you you talk about. I was reading an interview you gave where you. You go on, you know, pilgrimages, and I guess a lot of people are obsessed with Moby Dick and Melville to do this. Uh, yeah. But you, you pointed out something out that I, I hadn't known. Um, M- uh, Moby Dick, maybe was ahead of its time. I guess no, maybe about it, and it uh, killed his career. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, to, to, to sort of as sort of a preamble to my to my answer, I, I just, you know, I think I just really would really encourage. Any listeners that haven't given Moby Dick a chance um, to 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 maybe pick up a copy and and um, especially consider picking up a copy of the um, the Modern Library Classics version of the book, uh, which is just re- the typography is really well done and there's really beautiful illustrations by Rockwell Kent and it's. I think so much of about actually making it through the book is is about getting the right version because there's a lot of really poor versions out there, and that's the reason a lot of people abandon the reading experience um, you know a few chapters in. but but yeah, you know the book, and I you know we've been talking about my book, and as you mentioned all the things that it encapsulates, it's you know I can imagine that it might be confusing for the reader to think, well, wow, there's so many different elements in this book. what's this you know what is this book really about? and people had the same experience with, with Moby Dick because I, th- I think that it was postmodern before the term postmodern even existed. It's, it's just this, in my opinion, like a colossal creative achievement in the way that it collages um, and braids so many different elements. Uh, and there's so many different forms of storytelling and narrative. Uh, I mean, there's... There's, it's like a novel, but then there's long non-fiction chapters about uh, about the taxonomy of whales and there's a whole chapter that's just a sea shanty and there's stagecraft and there's poetic language and and then there's other just random, seemingly random stories thrown into the middle of the book that sort of resonate with the overall book but but in this day and age would probably end up on the cutting room floor because they're so digressive um, and so during its time it, it, i think that melville made six hundred dollars total on this book it, and it's just heartbreaking because of course it went on to be uh... revived in the nineteen twenties and you know it's largely considered one of the greatest novels ever written and i think that the reason it was revived in the twenties is because um, there was more appreciation for the way that that it um, the way that it told the story in such a multi-valent way. It's, it breaks out of that conventional kind of uh, step-by-step formulaic plot and and just does some just makes some spectacular moves on a on a narrative and craft
0: level. So, um, what do you think Melville would make of? you know uh, a bunch of people like you suffering from the white death
1: <laughs> i don't you know? he, i don't know um i don't know i i have no idea um I, I sometimes think about that would would the two of us get along in in a you know in person and i, was, God, I would have loved to have met him i was so uh, you know i was so inspired by him um i don't see him as a hero figure though he was a flawed he was a really flawed human being um but uh, I think I think that he would probably be pretty thrilled that uh, that you know he, he his book is uh, that his work is um, so lasting and important in our culture, and especially because you know he he died in obscurity in terms of in a literary sense. I mean, he he wrote Moby Dick, it's kind of tanked his career. He wrote Pierre, which is one of the most bizarre novels ever written, and not put the final nail in his career as a novelist, but. And then he worked for you know a couple decades as a customs clerk in New York City, and was kind of secretly writing poetry on the side. And uh, and then toward the end of his life, he wrote Billy Budd, which is uh, considered one of the, the most important novellas uh, in the canon. And so he he never quit. And I God, I admire him for that. Um, even given all the uh, the heartbreak and. In terms of his career, all the all the um, terrible reviews and and the financial problems, he just ne- he just never quit, and so I think that he I think they would really appreciate that um, that that so many people have have championed him.
0: We are out of time. We'll leave it there. Of course, uh, much more in this book. It's being well received. Um, the memoir is "The Great Floodgates of the Wonder World." The author is Justin Hawking. Uh, just for a couple of examples, uh, Wonder World was named a Barnes & Noble Discover new, uh, Great New Writer's Selection. It was named as one of the ten brilliant books that will grab you from page one by the Huffington Post and uh, Kirkus Reviews. And uh, Justin Hawking has joined us from uh, Oregon. He lives in Portland, uh, teaches at Eastern Oregon University, and he's, uh, um, he is co-founder of the year-long certificate program in creative writing at Independent Publishing Resource Center. Justin Hawking, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Tom, thank you so much. It was it was I really enjoyed speaking with you, and uh, I as well. Uh, thanks so much, and uh, join us, of course, again tomorrow for Access Utah. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio.